welcome to another episode of First Impressions, the podcast where we talk about our love for Jane Austen and give a middle finger to all the haters, a big middle finger, in fact. I am Kristen, and I am here with co-podcaster Maggie. Hello! <laughs> Say hello to the people, Maggie. And Hi. Um, <laughs> we, we are um, really excited today to be able to talk about um, a book. We're doing a book review. We're reviewing a book that came out in 2013 that many of you may have read. It's called Among the Jainites, A Journey Through the World of Jane Austen Fandom. And it was written by Deborah Yaffe. Now, the bio about her, she's worked as a newspaper reporter in New Jersey, um, she's covered education, state government, and lives in central New Jersey. And so you might say, why did she write a Jane Austen book? Well, she is also a fervent Janeite. And this book was sort of her brainchild, and her husband was really supportive and talked her into it. And I'm so glad because it, it turned out to be a quick, it, it went down easy. Let's say that. It was a fun <laughs> read. It was a fun read. And when, back when I read it, um, I really found it useful to sort of contextualize what was going on with my Jane Austen fandom. And so a quick description, because <laughs> I, I just actually really enjoyed this description from the website. From I believe this was on the Amazon site. They walk among us in their bonnets and empire waist gowns, clutching their souvenir tote bags and battered paperbacks. The Janeites, Jane Austen's legion of devoted fans. Who are these obsessed admirers whose passion has transformed Austen from classic novelist to pop culture phenomenon? Deborah Yaffe, journalist and Jay Knight, sets out to answer this question, exploring the remarkable endurance of Austen's stories, the unusual zeal that their author inspires, and the striking cross-section of lives she has touched. And so the book is actually divided into three parts. The first part is called In Jane Austen's Footsteps. And it talks about Yaffe's experiences going on a Jane Austen tour in England. Uh, this is a tour that Jasna actually had set up. And she sort of grapples with the fact that some of the sites she visits are very authentic. And she's trying to feel this connection to the actual person, Jane Austen, the historic figure. And then some of the things they do are a little bit more schlocky, touristy, commercialized movie sets or the Jane Austen Center in Bath and um, he sort of grapples with this and the crowds and how everyone wants a piece of Jane. And then the second part is called rereading, rewriting, which is a part that I really connected with is about people who read new meaning into Austen or see evidence in her writing that connects their own lives in surprising ways or ways that not everybody sees. And then the third part is called The Company of Clever, Well-Informed People. And we all recognize as a persuasion reference, which is about the history of, of Jainite mania, right? So it's about the founding of Jasna, Jane Austen Society of North America. It's about the Austin L. Listserv, the McGill University Listserv, which uh, had been running since 1995, and which I was a member of for many years. And then the website, The Republic of Pemberley, which I was also on all the time back in the, the 90s and early 2000s. So it's generally, it's the history of Jane Austen fandom, talks about famous blogs like Austen Prose and Austen Blog, and gives some really moving history of the founders of Jasna and who they were, and sort of frames it as this really is a place for not just academics, but also people who genuinely enjoy the novels. And I think this book was really empowering 
for me in getting into doing even a podcast. Obviously, I started this much later than when I read the book, but it sort of planted the seeds that, hey, we're all, a lot of us are doing something similar here. When we're getting into Austin, we're doing a sort of almost like a personal scholarship where we're using Austin and her guidance and her lessons to mean something to our lives. And Maggie was pointing out to me earlier, that's kind of what our first two episodes were about, right? Mm-hmm. Where I was just talking on and on about social anxiety and how I diagnosed Darcy with social anxiety. And this book has people diagnosing Darcy with autism, et cetera, et cetera. And somewhere uh, in the book, when when Yaffe, and I don't want to get too far out of sequence, but in the book, when Yaffe talks about these people who are doing this. She includes a note from uh, a comment from someone who says, you know, these are fictional characters. They cannot have any disorder because they simply (laughs) do not exist. But I would respond. These characters are 100% drawn from life as Austin was an incredible observer of people. And we can all agree that these disorders in some form, uh, unless you're, you know, really environmentally minded where this is all caused by some sort of chemical we can all agree these existed in the 19th century and that she may have observed people that had this problem without knowing it and sort of written about this behavior so i i think it's totally rational to look at this kind of stuff and sort of see symptoms and see behaviors that we recognize as being part of those disorders Sure. And I think the comment about these people don't really exist was probably in reference to when you start getting in the infighting. Like, well, I think this and that, like, you know, arguing on the Internet. <laughs> it's like, guys, why are you arguing about this? Like, remember, these aren't real people kind of thing. And just from my perspective, I just think it's interesting to come up with these kind of hypotheses and wonder. But it's always hypothetical because they are, in fact, not real people. Yeah, but yeah. It's, it's always an exercise in hypothesis, right? Right, yeah. And, well, exactly. And it's supposed to be fun, right? Right. So, I, I mean, it's interesting to talk about these things. If it's not your jam, you know, it's you can remove your, mute that conversation. Like, I don't care what, you know, about the Darcy autism controversy or whatever. Whatever floats your boat, right? Austin fandom, we, as Yaffe says, we want it to be a big tent, but then we don't. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and so there's a lot, there's a lot to say about that. And one, one note that, um, and kind of you alluded to this, Maggie, as far as this is just fun, it's just interesting. We are going to skip any discussion of Arnie Perlstein as it comes friend up. Friend of the in podcast. Friend of the yeah, podcast, friend, Arnie. <laughs> friend of the podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, because we know him personally, and at least for me, he's a dear friend. And so I wouldn't be objective in talking about Yaffe's depiction of him. I will say when I first read this book, I was very hurt by the depiction of him. But on rereading, I understand that she's a reporter and she's trying to portray all sides of how people feel about Arnie. And so uh, rather than trying to grapple with it, we're just going to bypass it. So that out of the way. Yeah. And also we're going to see him in about a month. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Arnie. Right. We're not getting um, into it. And he's, I mean, he has read it. He's in on it. You know, he understands that, that, that there's some humor to be found in it. Um, but I still really respect the work that he does. Yeah, absolutely. But, 
But anyway, I I thought this book was incredibly well done in the way Yaffe approached the subject matter. She sort of um, developed and teased out themes that I saw in the book. And I sort of have divided some of those themes up so that we can talk about them. And the first is sort of uh, the duality of Austin fandom. There is so much tension because we're being pulled in two directions. So we're going to talk about that. And the other two themes are of self-guidance, how we use Austin to sort of guide ourselves and inform our our emotional headspace and mental headspace. And then the third is the theme of community and how we're all really just like that little country village. And we may spill over into two podcasts. So Maggie and I have agreed to just sort of take things as they go. And um, we want to start by talking about this duality, which the book starts out talking about Yaffe's experiences touring England and the places where Austin lived and that are relevant to her or to the commercialized aspects of her because we did this tour, right? Yes. Well, we did, we did our own, we didn't go on like a tour group, two week tour kind of thing that she did, but we made our own itinerary and did our own Austin tour. Um, and we had a great time. It was really fun. And before that, I had gone with my mother and Kevin on a tour so that like Maggie's was like the second go round. And our friend Rachel joined us, friend of the podcast, Rachel. Friend of the podcast, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) And um, we had an amazing time. And I saw some of that trip in this book. I think Yaffe's experience was less satisfying than ours, but we stuck to the places where she had actually lived. Um, Except for you, you went up to the lake country, right? We did, yes. And I think also because there were only three of us, if we weren't on a tour with 20 people, um, when we went to Steventon and Chawton House, we had we had booked a tour guide for that day, but it was a like a private tour guide to drive us around. So it was just four people. So yeah. it was not this like overwhelming group of it, 20 it, people, flashball, you know, it was very private. It was a rainy day and Maggie made such an impression on the tour guide by the way, at Steventon, that he, like, presented her with an umbrella at the end. <laughs> I don't remember you know, like, that. <laughs> as a gift. Yeah, he's, just, he's like, you have my umbrella. Like, this is how much he was in love with you by the end of that day, um, which is, like, the most British thing ever, right? You just like, have to talk about Midsummer Murders. If you just let them know that you get the culture, <laughs> then they love you. <laughs> if, you're, if you're not, like, a gross American and don't know anything. Yeah. And, of course, Kristen impressed everyone with her Austin scholarship. I impressed him. I was I was quoting from um, I think Claire Tomlin is the name of the biographer or her Austin life. I quoted from it, and he was like, "Well quoted," and he was like very <laughs> impressed with us. So yeah, we did we did a good job. But um, Yaffe talks about the sort of duality of and, and the difficulty. I guess when she went to Winchester Cathedral, which is where Jane Austen is buried, it was a a, a busy day there and it was sort of crowded and she felt a, a sense of anticlimax. She thought she was going to feel these really strong feelings. Oh my God, I'm here. And that, you know, she was like, every, she says later, why does everyone want a piece of Jane Austen? I, I, it's, she needs to be for me, you know, Austin's for me. <laughs> That's a duality. It's like, we're all in it. And then we all, ha- we all have a community about Austin. And then we all have a personal relationship to Austin. When I was there, I, it was a rainy day. Not many people were there. I was there with my mom and Kevin. And I walked up to the grave and someone had left a folded piece of paper that was just 
barely unfolded, so it's sort of sitting there like a flower. And it said, you must allow me to tell you how ardently I admire and love you. And I was just, it was a moment, you know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) And in Chawton, you know, it was the same thing. I got to stand there all alone and see the hair. I believe that's where the hair is, right? Her her hair. Yes, we did see it. And um, how about you? Did you feel like a strong personal connection to Austin when you were there? Um, yes, especially at outside her chap, her father's chapel. Uh, there's a yew tree. There's a very yes. ancient yew tree, and so you think this tree has stood here before her, after her, and now. And Where then, they used to hide the key. They used to hide right. the key in that yew tree, right? Um, and for me, when I see tangible things, uh, like for example, at the British library in London, where you see her desk Mm -hmm. and you see her writings, um, seeing tangible things that the person held or created is what really gets me. Um, so seeing the items that they had on display at Chawton, I thought was very moving. Um, I should say though, at the offset, when we talk about this duality, you've got your, uh, pop culture Austin fans, and then you have your like serious scholarship Austin fans. Uh, until we did this podcast, I was definitely in the first group. So I get upset when people kind of look down on that group. But that's been a theme of our podcast also. It's like, don't shit on other people's hands. <laughs> right, right. Um, so people are entitled to love that world in any way they find it. Um, but uh, to answer your specific question for me, definitely like seeing the the places where she actually inhabited and the, the items that she actually held was very moving to me. There's so much grappling with the duality and, and it starts with um, the real Jane Austen versus the sweet maiden aunt, you know, mm-hmm. that James Austen Lee tried to put forward. And all, as we know from Devaney Lozer's work, all these conservative people saying she was a conservative. She is she a conservative or a liberal? It's amazing how hard we can fight about these things. And there is also the idea of the real Austen's world versus a manufactured experience. Right. And I, I have to say, I, I, you know, the Jane Austen Center in, in Bath Definitely was like, oh, my God, what am I doing here? You know, yeah. and she talks about the person who started it not having read a word of Austin. And, and there's a feeling of inauthenticity that even goes beyond the fact that some of the other stuff we look at is fake. Right. This feels right. extra fake. But at the same time, it was fun, you know, so yeah. it, it, we, it was a well-rounded trip. You have some fun and then you have you have that I have the experience of standing that in the home she lived across from Sydney Gardens and just tears were streaming down my face. I had this. And I said another podcast, too. It's like a religious experience. <laughs> and I have I have some other things to say about that, but I won't get, won't get into that. But it's, um you know, sacred original text versus commercialized adaptations or our modern times versus this mythical simpler time we try to step back into by doing our cosplay or our personal Austin, what she's saying to us, versus someone else's Austin, what she's saying to them, which this book really delves into uh, very deeply. And then <laughs> I wrote another example down. She has she talks about people who love the letter, right? The letter. Oh, persuasion. <laughs> <laughs> For it, versus people who think it is, to quote Billy Galperin, a, a professor from Rutgers, who's in this book, 
uh, trite. <laughs> and as you know, I've waffled back and forth between those two camps. So th- th- there's there's always a tension there. And there there is going to be, and this book is sort of a meditation that helps us come to some sort of, hopefully, a feeling of peace. And it was helpful for me. It was so helpful for me to read this book and understand I'm not the only one experiencing this tension and I don't, I feel less alone. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think for me, it's just, I don't understand why people fight about this. Some people see the letter as beautiful. Some people see it as trite. It's a purely subjective response. And so how can we argue about it when it's a subjective response? I mean, one of the things about Austin is she has few novels, but each one is very different. And people respond to different novels. People respond to different things in the novels. No one is going to make an argument that they're not important. So these kind of arguments, to me, I just don't understand. Like what what one person, I don't, I hate pickles. Faye (laughs) loves pickles. (laughs) I'm not going to argue that pickles aren't an important part of like Western um, (laughs) gastronomy, you know, but I personally don't like them. Uh, Mansfield Park is your jam. Mansfield Park, not so much my jam, but you're not wrong. And I don't think I'm wrong. Well, you might think I'm wrong. But my point is like, why are you fighting? Just read what the other person thinks and find it interesting. Maybe, I don't know. To go back to my point about the religious fervor, though, it's the kind of um, people have the emotional stakes in this. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, uh, you know, almost as like uh, people who get together and argue about interpretations of the Bible. You know, that's very important to them because it means something about their salvation. And I'm not. I'm not trying to accuse us all of idolatry here, so I hope no Christians are offended by me saying this, but they are the sacred texts, and to a lot of us, we have a very intense relationship to it, myself included. I think to your point, Maggie, I was looking through my own—this is such a vanity thing—but when Austin L., in this book, there is a listserv uh, that was started in the mid-'90s called Austin L. McGill University. I was on it in the the mid-2000s. What and a I nerd! Was, <laughs> very, it, it got very, it gets very into the weeds, and I searched some of my own posts. And one of the things I had sent to the list and said, you know, this may, I want to see if this generates any discussion, was an article in the New York Times opinion section called "In Defense of Naive Reading," and it was by a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago who was saying. We are making all these undergraduates read these pieces of literature, taking their opinions about what they mean, and in some cases saying, you are wrong. And now there are truly wrong ways to, I mean, there are some ways to interpret Austin that are just, you don't understand the language, you know, you, you yeah, are, there's you no are, objective support for, <laughs> right, for you what know. you are saying. Yeah. That is true. But when we get to the finer points, who are any of us to say, you know, you are wrong? And it should be fun to debate these things. You know, that this is this is for fun, guys, for most of us. I mean, aside the academics who tenured professors aside. But the, the problem the problem that you identified with it being seen as like sacred text and then people becoming so emotionally invested that someone who disagrees with an interpretation has like is a personal attack. This happens in every fandom, which is why a lot of fandoms turn into garbage, right? <laughs> and in a lot of the fandoms, I would say it's based on a lot of it is misogyny, which is not the case in Jane Austen fandom because we're almost all girls. 
Um, but this is not unique to Jane Austen fandom. Well, that's I good. mean, people think, um, what's a good example? Okay, so like Star Wars, right? No one, I mean, we're not going to argue that like Star Wars is sacred text, right? It's their movies. But right. I mean, that fandom can be vicious. So I mean, people it's every write fandom. Jedi in their, yeah. in their religion, you know, in the census, right? In Britain, don't people write Jedi Knight sometimes? Yeah, like some people do take it all the my that- point, Yeah, but my point is like, that's us. Yeah. Doing that. Uh, that's humans being humans. Yeah. But, and it's also like this duality and this like infighting and passion. It's not just Austin. It's every fandom. And this phenomenon, I don't know, but maybe it's true. Uh, this phenomenon of self-discovery through rep- repetition, reading the works, watching the works, and taking things away from the works maybe this happens with star wars fans too are there people who come away and think well han solo said this and i really believe that and oh I need- yeah for sure oh yeah any <laughs> i'm pretty sure any fandom you would find that and that's like people begin to define themselves by what they see and we see this all the time in jane austen right because people say like well it's a good like more I've developed a moral code based on these not people do that with every fandom I feel less special now <laughs> oh no 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 don't feel less special. I'm just saying like what real what strikes me reading this book is because I'm I'm participant in many fandoms and so reading this book it none almost none of these things are unique to the Jane Austen fandom especially where certain type like quote types of fans look down on others I will say what is unique is having more of this like academic and scholarship just because they are classic novels. Well, and here's my thesis. So Billy Galperin, this professor who I referenced earlier, makes a point in here about the difference between the academics and the fans is essentially that the fans are going back to the books time and time again or the movies time and time again, and they just want the repetition, right? They they want to watch these things because they find them good and quality. And fun, yeah. yeah. And fun. And the academics go back to them and they always want to be saying something new. Mm-hmm. So they always want to be, go. they 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 take the text, but then they t- t- go two degrees away. Oh, let's read this other religious book that, you know, book that was written at the time that gives us context for Mansfield Park. And this will transform the text into something else. And show why it's important. There's a section in here where Devony Lozer has a student say, you know, do you like or dislike M- Mary Crawford? And then the student says, why? And Devony says, you've just taken it away from like and dislike and told me why it's important, right? Mm-hmm. But here's my thesis in that there's a third kind of person in all of this, which is the fan that goes back to the repetition time and time again not only because the text is good, but because the text is important. And the text is important in the context of their emotional life. They are doing a kind of scholarship. Going back to this text over and over for me was a type of personal scholarship learning about myself. And it was new. Everything that I was getting from it was new. I wasn't getting the same kind of enjoyment every time. I was interpreting it in different ways and relating it to my life and people that I knew. And how can I navigate this better? And so that's my sort of my sort of thought in all this. Galperin says that so much literary criticism 
is a kind of mutilated autobiography, which I found hilarious because that's what it is. I'm doing mutilated. You know, like when when I'm talking about what Austin means, it's coming through, you know, my autobiography. And so it's funny to hear him say that about academics, too, because you always have a little bit of a suspicion, right? Well, I think for you, it sounds like the personal scholarship you were doing then led you to the more academic because yeah. you you wanted to read more, and so you started reading articles and started reading people's papers and accompanying books and the books of the era. And so it kind of led you to that more academic side. Yes, I needed more family. context and more context in order to understand the original texts. And you know, I, I like talking about, you know, the slavery subtext in Mansfield Park. I think all that is interesting. But the further, the more degrees you go away from the text, the less good I am about that kind of literary criticism and wanting to pursue it. Because I think that's that's my personal relationship with Austin. And there are really interesting examples of this kind of self-discovery in this book. And one of the ones I wanted to talk about was the woman in the book who sought to change or, or, or maybe change her abusive husband by understanding the mechanism by which Darcy changes, in, you know, it, through the course of Pride and Prejudice. So she becomes exposed to Austin and she, like me, is incredibly moved and fascinated by Firth's portrayal of this change that he goes through. And She's um, very committed to her marriage. She, you know, believes in marriage. She doesn't want a divorce. So she's thinking, how can I get my husband to change? Um, Because let me just say, that's fucked up. It is. (laughs) I know. And you always want to believe. And I believe. I was like, the men around me can change. This is proof. And then you're you're forced to accept (sighs) that it's a fictional character and not Yeah, but this is also, this is the trap. And this is what women are taught, that we can change men. And the and what people always miss in Pride and Prejudice, and we talked about this, is that, yes, Darcy changes, but so does Lizzie. Like, she doesn't just stay the same through the novel, and he becomes not a jerk. They both and then uh, he, like, them. deserves her now. Yeah. yeah they right. both change. Right. And yeah. But it's just, it's just a very common trap. You see it all the time in, like, movies and things like that. And I think it's very dangerous especially for young girls where we teach women like, Oh, if, but if a man is a jerk and disrespects you, if you love him enough and put in the time, you can change him. And ultimately, uh, not only does the guy not change and I'm so happy that, you know, she ultimately left her, her marriage, but yeah, I guess from a journalist's perspective is why she did this. Although I was, I was very surprised to see this actually reached out to the abusive husband and was mm-hmm. like, what's your take? And he blamed Austin, which yeah, is Yeah, he's like, God damn, calling for- <laughs> <laughs> It made her too idealistic too, you know. But I disagree with that. I completely disagree with that because what Austin was portraying and what she was praising is when people do learn and change and not everybody does, Not you know, not every person in your life will do that. But when it is possible and where it is possible to evolve based on the feedback you get from other people, it is extraordinarily praiseworthy. And also, she's, what is Austin is also saying is, as we've talked about before, look, there are rules and that there are ways to behave that you, you cannot violate. If you do, you, you are judged very harshly and morally right. from, by Austin and this guy, this abusive guy who was so horrible, uh, 
this is an understatement to say he was violating the rules of how you treat people, right? As Darcy was. And so how do you get people to understand you can't treat people like that? It is possible. But yeah, in this case, it just, you know, so glad she got out of there, right? So here's an interesting question. And maybe this is a question better asked for Arnie and his shadow plots. But (laughs) is there an abusive, physically abusive relationship in Austin? Do you think there is one where if we like, I don't think there's an overtly one. I don't think Mm -hmm. she ever does that. But do you think if certainly there are many emotionally abusive relationships? Right. But are there any that you can think of that would be that would be like a physically abusive relationship? I don't. And the men Austin portrays are not as, you know, to use the old timey term vicious in that that they have a lot of vice. I'm trying to think of what Willoughby might be the closest one to sort of a rake, you know, gambling or Wickham. Gosh, you can totally see Wickham. What about, and what about the older brother in Mansfield Park when he's like a drunk and gambling? Oh, yeah. Or um, Captain Captain Tilney. uh, Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that too. There's an implication in the Northanger Abbey um, movie. I think you could easily read that into the uh, actor's portrayal. Yeah, he was very dark. Yeah. Definitely. They they anyway, were very dark with him. But that's interesting to think about. Yeah, it is. And um there's more uh, there's so much more when people are talking about, you know, there's another a couple more examples of people reading in things into Austin's characters right. and that it's helpful to them in some way. I was really struck by the woman who was using Austin as bibliotherapy for people who are related to those with borderline personality disorder and have been right. abused by those people. Uh, Mrs. Bennett. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, from what she's seeing in the books, she's seeing Austin portray relationships that are abusive. They're met, you know, emotionally abusive, but that's still abuse. And she sees it. She sees it in a, in a lot of places and who are we to gainsay? I mean, she's the one who's had the person abuse her. And she's reading these books and finding therapy through it. Mm-hmm. And here's my thing. It's like, we're all just so screwed up that if you if you can explain your problems through characters, either yours or someone else's, that's therapy. That I mean, Austin was not a mental health professional, as, as Yaffe said. She, she didn't have any context for any of that. But she was, in her own way, saying, this behavior exists, this behavior is not cool, never is cool. I I, I forget the exact quote, but she demands ethical and rational behavior and fair behavior. And if you do not give it, no matter what character you are, you are subject to her judgment. And And she was was certainly an expert in observing human behavior. And what I think is interesting is that even Frederick Wentworth, the character who we all think is so sexy and desirable and, and you know, love him, it Austin um, does punish him for his behavior that violates. You know, I'm always saying, you know, what a jerk he is for what he does to Anne. Well, Austin holds him to account and says his behavior is bad. He's gotten himself into this horrible situation where people in the neighborhood expect him to marry Louisa. He's hurting his credit with the world and has Anne sort of deplore that. So even he is not safe from Austin's sort of judgment coming down on him, which I think is fascinating. Okay, new TV series pitch. We've had the, like, Jane Austen as Jessica Fletcher solving murders 
in Regency time, which I still think is a genius idea. But what <laughs> if we make her, she's solving murders, but she does it like that guy who, is it psych? Where he like convinces people he's psychic, but he's just excellent at observing <laughs> their behavior. So that's another like twist on it. She's so good at observing people's behavior that she convinces people that she actually is psychic and knows what they're thinking. <laughs> I would watch it. I know, I mean, right? Hey, Why don't people talk to me about this? I've got great ideas. That's the skill set that she has. And and we were we were going to talk about fandom a little later. I'll give you a brief history of my the way I was doing this. Because I, I identify so strongly with the people who see borderline personality disorder or autism or whatever in Austin's characters and use that. So... I actually, as I mentioned, I was into Austin very young. I was on the Republic of Pemberley too, which is this site, um, this site that what you know, website that got started very early on, where people went to discuss Austin. I was there. What a nerd! <laughs> what a nerd, indeed. That's okay. I was too busy going to Star Trek conventions and dressing up in Star Trek costumes, so I don't know what you're talking about. Well, here's the thing. I actually, at that time, was not into the nerdy aspect of it at all. I didn't read the discussion boards. I was there for the hot and heavy fanfic. Because, yeah. <laughs> because, Especially you know, that Flash fanfic, Kristen. <laughs> oh, my God. There wasn't too much of that at that time, surprisingly. Not that I saw, but, you know, it's there now, um, which is great. This this world is a rich tapestry. But, I, I um, yeah, I was there because I wanted to know what happened with Darcy and Elizabeth after the camera stopped, which is what Yaffe sort of describes here as well. Um, and then I got on Austin L when I got to a different period of my life, which was, I was really suffering. So a lot of these people in this book were, were seeking guidance for their mental health issues. I was not an exception to that because in the mid two thousands, I had what I did not know at the time was untreated bipolar disorder. And I'll say a few things at this point. First, if you employ me and you're listening to this, it's totally under control and it's not affecting my work in any way. I swear to God, it's just an invisible disability and it's fine. Uh, to friends and family who are listening to this, I'm still the same person that I was 10 seconds ago. You know, nothing has changed about me other than now, you know, there was a time that was really hard for me. And this is disclosure of her mental status and that is any way meant to imply that she cannot perform her job or duties as a friend yeah. or family member or as an employee of where she works. So please don't contact us about it. Yeah, thank you. But there's a reason for that. And the reason that I have employment, the reason that I still have friends and family who will speak to me when I was going through this time is Jane Austen, is the rules. She has these rules that there are things that are improper. There are ways that you can treat people that are just never acceptable. You have a duty to other people. And every time people stray from that, characters stray from that in Austin, they are censured and judged for that. And there's a quote in uh there's a quote in Among the Jainites, Jane Austen is like a guide where there's nothing else that's guiding us. And that is the truest quote in this book. And that's why people are are scouring her. Um just to, I mean, just to give you a sense, because I want to, I want to paint a picture like it. And I have, I have a type of bipolar disorder. Also, I'll say this because maybe it mitigates people freaking out for me saying this. 
I have bipolar two, which is you never go full mania. So you never go into psychosis where you think you're a god or, or gamble like, away. Uh, homeland. You're not going to start like, <laughs> or right. you're not going to make a murder board. <laughs> right. You're not going to make a murder board. You're not like, yeah, Charlie from uh, It's Always Sunny, you know, in that meme where he's got all the things going to, you know, it's not, it's not like that. But what it is like is imagine when you've gotten, and it's different for everybody. I'm just trying to put it in terms where it's experiential that other people can relate. But you imagine a day where you got a, a horrible crushing blow, bad news, or you failed at something and you remember you were reeling. You, you had to just go home and go to bed. You couldn't do your normal job or life duties. You, you know, you're just overwhelmed by it to the point where you couldn't function. And what if you were like that every day at random times that hit you? Or what if the slightest sitback hit you that way and you had to manage this incredible crushing emotion and not really, you can't really even show other people that because they wouldn't understand. They have no context for it and they just think you're being irrational and, and you know unreasonable to be upset about something and try to talk you out of it that way when it's something chemical that you cannot control. Or imagine you you get up you know at the beginning of the day and you feel energy like I'm going to get all of this stuff done today and it's going to be great but imagine if that was a compulsion that you couldn't stop doing things that you were doing things so quickly and you were just concentrating on it so hard and you couldn't get out of it you know and you organize your entire house and then you know you you go out and like do 5 hours of yard work and then you go to the store and buy your massive you know to-do list and you can't stop that forward motion or you know what if you were happy you felt joy but you felt it so much that it frightened you like you were honestly just frightened you were feeling so much um that it was unpleasant it you know it was joy in a, in a way that was almost unpleasant you are like if so... I eat an entire chocolate cake. <laughs> yes. There is joy there, but there is also fear. <laughs> you see pain. And there, are pay, there is pain at the end of that <laughs> chocolate cake rainbow. <laughs> Spending, you spend all of your mental energy that you have trying to manage this so that you look and act like a normal person. And the slightest thing that throws you off track or upsets you or is challenging for you, you don't have anything left to deal with that. So you're angry or you snap or you're unkind or you, you, you leave work early in tears or, you know, you just you cannot handle normal life and the expect, expectations that people have of you being appropriate and kind and not crossing those boundaries and not being selfish because at the day you really need to, at the end of the day you really are selfish because you're exhausted and so in order to have the things i wanted to have which was a job a happy life friends relationships everything the way to do that is to treat the rules as completely unbendable and i mean i read so much austin that and I was so hard on myself. I would judge myself so harshly if I had a meltdown or a tantrum or was difficult to Kevin or whatever. I would then go to Austin and see like how would this is outside of the acceptable behavior that Jane Austen has defined that I completely 100% agree with. It's unacceptable to treat other people that way. And so trying to keep myself on track like that. And now 
I was sort of, because I was untreated and I did not know what was wrong with me, really blamed myself for my inability to be the character that Jane Austen would uh, approve of. And as again, as Daffy says, she's not a mental health expert. She can't write a very affecting scene about Marianne and then, you know, put in a suicide hotline. Like if you were a loved one, you know, that's <laughs> just not the, 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 the text does not lend itself to, hey, maybe you should go get on some, you know, drugs. But what it does do, and the reason it's also sacred text in that way, is that it offers an, a redemption. It offers a way out or a, an assurance that you will still be loved. So even though Marianne is selfish and censured and, you know, has to reap the consequences of that, Eleanor never stops loving her, Right. Anne Elliot never stops loving that dumpster fire of a human being, Frederick. <laughs> wow. You know, even, and this is, maybe this is a weird one. This is kind of a wacky one. But it always struck me that Mrs. Norris never stops loving Mariah for yeah. blowing up the triumphant marriage that she she goes with her, uh, you know, which is not exile. <laughs> into exile. Which yeah. is not, it's great. What what all started this, I think, was reading the passage in Pride and Prejudice when Elizabeth has this crushing blow to her mind when she is reeling from encountering Darcy again at Pemberley. And there's a passage where she's walking around in her absence of mind, right, because she's managing her emotions this way. Her absence of mind is remarked upon. And it says she felt the necessity of appearing more like herself. And I recognize that she had to do that because she owed the other people on her trip a duty not to sort of ruin their time, yeah, right? Don't be um, such a down, Debbie Downer. Yeah, by being a Debbie Downer. Yeah. So, yeah. So, and one of the things that Yaffe sort of struggles with is that when you give characters an out by saying, oh, they, they might have autism, uh, that it, it removes the moral judgment on them. I didn't feel that. I felt the moral judgment was on me still because people who have these things, who have autism, who have bipolar disorder or whatever, they are always held. The code still applies. And I can tell you 100% that that was true for me. And everybody I told once I got diagnosed that I had bipolar disorder, they were not any more likely to take my shit I mean, they weren't. They <laughs> held me to the same standard of anybody else who would, and, and they should. You should. You don't get to abuse people or be a jerk because of these things. It's harder for you, and maybe people will give you a little more slack and understand that you're you're trying and you're learning. But you still have a responsibility towards them not to be abusive. Anyway, you can talk now. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, just kind of what I hear, what I heard you saying, how I interpreted what you were saying when you the the first part is that Austin provided some much-needed structure at a time when you felt like you didn't have any. Yes. And so maybe a lot of people come to her. I mean, because it's, it's all chance, like, however you come to her, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's no rite of passage where some, for most people where someone sits you down. It's like, now is the time <laughs> for you to read this book. You just like, oh, I saw... Pride and Prejudice on TV or was signed in school or someone recommended it, you know. And so for some people, it's just the right thing at a needed time to provide a certain type of structure for whatever they might need. It's true. And there, um, are, there are tons of stories like this. And as you said, with other fandoms, too. 
I wonder if that is something that people who are particularly passionate about Austin might share, is at some point they struggled either physically or mentally, and it was something that was able to help them at that point. And that's when it, that is why it's so passionate about it. Yeah, they I have mean, these strong emotional responses. I agree. Come to me and tell me that Mansfield Park is not a work of genius. And I will say, do you know how much it helped me to read about Julia and Mariah and Mr. Crawford and, you know, Mr. Yates all vying for that one special role that they wanted? The tiny moves that they make. Austin is holding you to a moral standard that is literally that tiny. If you are no matter you know what your goal is attempting to selfishly manipulate a situation by your comments you are breaking the code you know that dot, dot, dot in this ted talk i will <laughs> <laughs> right exactly i mean exactly i mean that's why mariah ultimately runs away with crawford is because this selfishness she laid the groundwork of selfishness and she behaved this way anyway yeah try telling me try telling me it's not a work of absolute genius you know cuz that's how much it means to me, right? Right. Well, that's not um, what people are disagreeing about, though. The The disagreement would not be that it's an important piece of literature. Um, the disagreement would be, well, I think actually Mariah was doing that, right? Like, it's that, it's that interpretation of the character's actions and the work that then prompts people to get into fights online. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I got into a little bit of trouble, actually, in the Austin blogosphere. Oh, God. Were you trolling time. people, Kristen? I was not trolling. I <laughs> I was, um, you know, had a lot of energy. Um, and oh, <laughs> during that time, I was in library school and did a project called the Jane Austen Search Engine for one of my classes that had... It, what it was, was a Google custom search. So I was in library school and I had to show that I knew how to build a digital library. So I, I had Google create a custom search bar that would only search, I configured it to only search sites that I decided were of relevance to the Austin world. Amazing. And I put on the front of it six RSS feeds of various blogs that I just happened to know about. And I was doing this to get a grade for my class, right? But I had to explain part of the grade. I had to explain why I chose the sites I chose. And so I put a little paragraph together. Well, you know, I hesitated to include pop culture Austin sites because I would hate for somebody to find something that was less than reliable. However, I find these sites of interest to sociological, you know, sociologists mm. or others who want to study Austin fandom. And this paragraph offended no less than Laurel Ann Natris of Austin Prose. I don't know how she find the site. She must have had a, a Google alert set up on the name Jane Austen because my site was not, I mean, it was some little. Uh, she also knows how to create a <laughs> custom search engine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so she, <laughs> she gave me right up and she was like, uh, you know, I hate to burst your bubble in your ivory tower, but sometimes okay. academics get it wrong too. And then there was this controversy in that I hadn't put a certain blog up there and that person's feelings were hurt. Aww. And so I got these private messages like, hey, you know, could you consider it? And I, I had to go out there and be like, guys, I am nobody and this is nothing. I mean, like, yeah. This is just, and then there were privacy concerns because it was searching Austin L. You know, like I, I, it was 
it turned into this whole thing. But, but yeah, yeah, that's that fandom. Like, like that's that was exactly my 15 minutes of fame. Yeah, in the Austin blogosphere. So I'm fa- hey, touch me, I'm famous. You know, you're a you're a um, BDF, a big deal fan. I was BDF, yes, for like a hot sec. I am <laughs> not. I thought I was actually an influencer, and I was not. <laughs> I am not a BDF. No, nor am I a social media influencer. But I look forward to us making a splash at Jasna. <laughs> Yeah. Watch out, Jasna. Watch out, bitches. <laughs> and here we come. Put that on our cards that we're going to hand out. Oh, yeah. Well, Watch I, out, bitches. I kind of, I was like, what if someone asks us about the podcast and we're trying to tell them and we're trying to get them to remember the URL or the name of it. We could just have like a little card to hand them. So yeah, we've uh, got business cards. Yeah, we are legit. Uh, we're talking about mental illness. We are talking about <laughs> fandoms. Yeah. We have everything. We've got scholarship. We've got pop culture. Yeah, we've got it. And, you know, this is a this is a digression. But for those in our listener group who have read the book Ready Player One, do you remember? One of my favorite books of all time, by the way. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a controversial book. I know a lot of people hate it. But what it is is about a guy, uh, James Halliday, I think is the character's name, but he creates a whole second world, almost like second life, but actually good. And everybody's on it all the time. And he's so obsessed with the pop culture of the 80s when he grew up that everyone in this world, it's its incredibly detailed with regard to all the movies of the 80s and all the uh, music and everything, the video games. And what you come to understand through the course of the book the main character is trying to unlock the secrets of this guy's mind and win a contest to become, you know, famous and rich by solving a puzzle. This guy has set out and all these eighties things. And what you come to understand by the end of that book is that this person, James Halliday was, he was for sure on the spectrum. I think that's what we're supposed oh, to take. hundred percent. That's purposeful. That's not just like, Oh, I was observant of human. That's like a purposeful character choice for him. I believe. Yeah, I'm sure. And he, well, he said the only way he can relate to other people, he can actually even communicate with other people, is through the medium of 80s pop culture, right? This is the tool that he used to decode his life and decode what was going on with him. And I just, I just related to that character so strongly. I was like, what if I were to make, to, to invent... Um, the world, this virtual world, except for everybody had to like be really good at Austin, <laughs> in Austin characters, uh, and second yes, emergency phase. But side note, the people who don't like that novel, the because this is one of my favorite novels, the criticism, that novel is nothing but a bunch of pop culture references strung together. And I think what that criticism misses is that the novel is doing the same thing that that character does. The novel creates a connection with the reader by referencing music, movies, video games, other games to bring about an emotional reaction. So yes, it's full of pop culture references, but I think that it is purposeful to create a connection with the reader. So if you're not familiar with the references, that book isn't really going to do a lot for you. <laughs> right. And I mean, that is kind of limiting, right? Because now the author has, you're turning off people who are not going to understand all your Steven Spielberg movie references and, or who don't have a connection to those type of things. But the people who do, it's like speaking another language, which is a language through experience. 
Right, right. Shared experience. That's how you can express yeah. things. It's almost like that episode of, of Star, Star Trek. Trek Next Gen. Yes. yes. Oh, my God. I was just going to say that. The shaka when the walls fell. <laughs> yes. 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 Oh, my God, Kristen. We are so on the same wavelength. So, <laughs> Do you want to explain what it is? Yes, you were I would love to. to. So for those who don't know, there is an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation when Picard is, I believe he's stranded on an alien planet with an alien. And the issue is, yes, they have universal translators. So while they apparently speak the same language this alien's language is entirely based on references to metaphor and historical events so he keeps saying like shaka when the walls fell shaka when the walls fell and picard's like i don't understand and it's because if you do not understand the entire shared history of these people you don't know what they're saying (laughs) and then he finally figures out what's going on. He's like, oh, you're saying that this situation is just like that situation from your past. And now I get it. Huge breakthrough. And it's this really interesting study on language and how we communicate and how we have these like idioms and cultural references that non-native speakers do not understand. And so I really feel like that book... Uh, Ready Player One, it's it's that similar type of situation. If you don't get, quote, again, air quote, get the reference, you don't, it doesn't evoke the feeling. When we read Austin, we each have to do it privately. We each have to have our own sensations. And that's why we all diverge so much, right? We can't right. necessarily, well, so with the movies we can, right? We can get together and we've all seen the same scene. But the way it plays out in our heads and the the passages we choose to focus on and what makes an impression on us can can be even more divergent when we're reading versus when we watch a movie. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm off. And also, but that story, that interpretation has been filtered through the director's focus, the screenwriter, the uh, actor. Everyone has made choices in presenting to you know, like in Northanger Abbey, it starts with the scene where um, the woman is seduced, and it like it takes subtext and makes it text, right? But that's not in the book. That's a choice that the storyteller has made. That is not Jane Austen's choice. And so, just like we filter these experiences through a filmmaker, when you're reading the book, you're filtering it th- through your own. Oh, and you're you're talking about the Davies adaptation of yeah. Sense and Sensibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Almost every Davies interpreted. Right. <laughs> right. How hard did you laugh when Davy? Okay, Andrew Davies goes oh, to the Jasmine. Was, con- was the Jasmine keynote speaker? <laughs> oh and God. then he's at the bar with all oh, of your groupies. If he went to that, why doesn't he come to ours? Because I would just die if I... I would just think it was hysterical that he was there. If Classic he was, like, baby. Yeah, right? Classic <laughs> conference behavior. You know, also, hitting a bar like after a hours. rock star at that conference, right? <laughs> like, is there any other place in the world where Andrew Davies would be such a rock star? Is he welcome after um, after Sanditon comes out? It'll be interesting. I don't know, the, what, the 10-part <laughs> miniseries based on a five-chapter book? I don't know. We'll see. Oh, you and I are going to have to figure out some kind of viewing party. It's not, it's just, yeah. it's just not Jane Austen. They're slapping the name Jane Austen on it, you, you know. 
It you, better you know say my... inspired by because it better say that. Yeah. Like saying Jane Austen wrote about light incest or whatever it was that that review of it said that you posted earlier. I know. It's like, oh, so it's like Jane Austen via uh, VC Andrews. Yeah. (laughs) You know, but to to go back to your idea of like the shared culture, there is a quote in Among the Janites where somebody who is it? Oh, Galperin is again, Billy Galperin, who's saying Austin represents a kind of cultural capital, a one woman heritage industry. Why do you think it is that we go back to that we go back to the the dresses and the wanting to be we were talking about the power of physical objects and physical places you know being in the lower assembly rooms and seeing the actual chandeliers that she saw the power of that or reading her handwriting and understanding that the books that we love so much that are on the printed page were at one time written by a human being from her own brain by her own hand and just being blown away by the perfection of every sentence. She's like a Mozart or something, you know? Yeah. But um, what I was going to say is I thought maybe, you know, the dress up and the dancing and stuff. I thought, you know, you just like the guy who learned how to forge Austin's handwriting. Maybe that's a little silly, but actually what could be a better way to connect with the actual physical sensations that those characters, Austin imagined those characters were having. You know, what better way to connect to how the characters might have, how Austin thought the characters might have felt than to be in that environment doing these English country dances, which Jaffe says are actually very, even though they look kind of like line dance, you know, like um, square dancing or whatever, they're very intimate. (laughs) Yes, but also that stuff's just fun. (laughs) I mean, I've got two Game of Thrones cookbooks. I've got cosplay you know like people just again this is something that's very it's in every fandom and and people are not i'm not cooking out of my game of thrones cookbook to like connect to george R. R. martin like i don't give a right. crap about that <laughs> it's just fun it's just another way to put yourself in that world that feels real to you and so like you're but the dancing and the like that's to me at least that's fun i just think it's fun it takes a level of bravery i mean yaffe talks about it in her book to to say who, you know, you kind of saying like, who am I to pretend credibly that I could be a part of this or that I could feel like a part of this fun world when I'm so knitted to the sacredness. And um, it really is affecting actually when she goes, I'm a lot, the reason I'm getting, I'm so I'm getting a dress made for Jasna to go to be as part of the ball. And the reason I'm doing it is because of this book. Because it shows the journey that you you can sort of go on. There is a, a level of additional understanding that you come to. And I'm really looking forward to that. Either yes. that or I'm really not looking forward to that. Like Yaffe, I'm either looking forward to it or really not looking forward to putting on that dress. It is really interesting what you just said. Because you just, what I heard you say is it takes a certain amount of bravery to do those things because you don't think you deserve to participate sometimes. Yeah. And that is a hundred percent not what I thought you were going to go with. Oh, really? What I thought you were going to go with is it's very brave to participate because people who don't might judge you. And I just think it's very tell like the like what do you mean you don't deserve to participate? 
That's yeah. the whole point. <laughs> but I think I, that goes to kind of what you were saying about like how you do have these um, issues and things like that that Austin has helped you with. But the idea that you would hesitate because you didn't feel you deserved to participate, to me, it's like, what? Yeah. I because mean, I, if anybody does, Kristen, it would be you. <laughs> I haven't earned it. I'm a person who feels like you have to do all of your homework before you do anything. I haven't earned it. I don't know anything about muslins. I'm getting a dress made. And I don't know. I didn't even pick out a pattern. You know, I showed them some pictures of Pride and Prejudice. And that's about it. And See, that is so funny because so many people, it's like the only thing they can do to participate. To be like, well, I don't. I haven't read all the articles, haven't even read all the books, but I can put on a bonnet and be a part of the community. You know, it's like almost the people on the entire opposite side of the coin where it's like that is the way that they actually make themselves feel part of the community yeah, because they don't have the wherewithal or time or ability to be experts, but they yeah. can do that. So it's just, it's so interesting to me to hear you say that because it's, I was not expecting you to say that at all. I was worried about a little bit of ridicule, too. I remember I posted on Facebook one time. It was like angry rant that Austin is just not love, not just loving bonnets. And I'm I'm reading her because it's, it's for scholarly reasons. And then, you know, I'm not just I don't just care about the costumes. I don't you know. And then in the comments, I was like, hey, Maggie, do you remember when we went to the costume exhibition in Bath and we tried on those corsets? And then I was like, I realize I'm totally undoing <laughs> my pretension well, that is also part of our theme of our podcast too is to say that it's not just it's looked down a lot as like just romance novels and stuff and it because we're so in it we don't feel that way it seems ridiculous to say it now but there are people who do feel that way now i have cred now if someone now you know before this podcast if i was having dinner with my family and someone made a snarky comment i would probably have just like laughed it off or whatever but now i'd be like excuse me i have twenty five thousand fucking downloads <laughs> um, not to, sorry to use the F-bomb, but I would be mad and I would be like, people are interested in this and it's valid and, you know, like bring the receipts. And, um, so I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm so pugnacious now that I'm less afraid of people laughing at me and within my hearing, yeah. let's just put it that way. I just think that doing the things like the dancing and the costumes and stuff, it's a way to, it's a way to participate that doesn't require yeah. all the homework. And there are and so, so many. But then it makes me feel bad to hear you say that because, Kristen, if you want to wear a dress, just wear the dress. Yeah, you don't have to justify it. You don't true. have to be an, an Austin expert to put on. I mean, I'm not dressing up because I can't, I don't have any money. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to probably try to wear something evocative. But if you want to wear it, just wear it. Like we're giving a middle finger to all the haters, but that also includes anyone who might want, like, what you have to ask me for my. Austin expertise before I can put on this fucking bonnet. Like, I just want to wear it. <laughs> My point is, you don't have to justify or feel like the whole point of this fandom is to make you feel good, not to make you feel like you have to prove yourself. Right. Well, I'm hardly Baranda um, from this book who has the gorgeous dresses, but I absolutely loved her story where she was like, I, I go to these conferences and because of my outfits, I'm so respected. This is the and, thing I can do. Yes, like, this, this is, is my part. Yeah, I'm so respected. And and how she wanted her first husband to see that, and he never went. 
you know, that was crushing to me that sometimes people won't even get in our tent or disdain our tent. Um, and But you don't feel like, I also feel like maybe I'm contributing to the exasperation that the scholarly types feel with us Jasna types where we're taking something to quote the book that that is a deeply private love and reducing yeah. it to a, a fairground just a, that, yeah. a popular and, media pandering and this goes back to that duality right like the people who take it so seriously and to them it it is a per, an academic scholarly pursuit and then the people who just like watch the miniseries and show up and undress. But this is, I don't know, I just, uh, it may, it just makes me really sad when you have these infightings and fandoms because I think it should be big enough for everyone to just enjoy it the way they want to enjoy it. Like, why does it hurt you if someone just taking, loves watching that? They're taking it from us. They're taking it away and they're polluting it. And that Austin is a teller, this is another quote, Austin is a teller of our own stories. And okay, yeah, okay, Lady Catherine, whatever. Yeah, no, like, I, <laughs> no I know you're just making the argument. I'll read, um, I'll read a passage that I marked uh, from the book. We are a tribe, we Janeites. We name our children and our pets after people who never existed, treat an elderly screenwriter like a rock star, and seek 21st century life lessons in 200 year old books or the tarot cards based on them. Our love for Jane Austen unites us, and yet sometimes it seems that we all love something or someone different. But isn't that great? See, to me, that's great. Yeah. Um, and then it goes on to talk about in- people who find inspiration for racy sex scenes, which I know you wanted to talk about the um, fanfic. Oh, yeah. I just, I have, I am not super familiar with it, but I'm going to read it now. She's a, Maggie is so excited to read The Bar Sinister or Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife as described. Which is the one where they said it's just like reading more Austin. Was that Bar Sinister? No, that Bar Sinister was the one that's totally wacky. Well, maybe if we have time, I will read both. um, I think the um, one that's reading just like Austin was the lady who wrote Be Not Alarmed, Madam, on Republic of Pemberley, which I believe I actually read. I am the OG of this book. Like, I am mad that I'm not mentioned in it. Because, no, I'm joking. <laughs> but that's what it was like to read for me. It's like, I know this. I know all this. I know it's my thing. This is my jam. You know, like, it's me. It's me. You it, also me. have on past podcasts said that you don't read any of the, like, that's continuing true. stories. So well, I'm, getting, I'm getting mixed messages now from yeah, you. Yeah, no, that's true. But back in the day, back in the day, honestly, I hadn't even read Pride and Prejudice, the book, I think, at the time I was on Republic of Pemberley. I just wanted to know more about Darcy and Elizabeth from the movies. Maybe What if there is a progression? Like maybe one of the reasons why the super serious scholarly people who look down on the Fairweather fans is because that used to be them, but they put in the time (laughs) and became the scholarly fan. And then it's like they have now blinded themselves to the fact that that used to be them. Yeah, or and they they're like a black belt compared to like a yellow belt, right? <laughs> or they had to earn their love through yeah, the yeah. English literature. They had to do it for an assignment, right? They had to read it for a class. Like a lot of folks in here, I think I think it was George Justice, by the way. George Justice. The <laughs> coolest <laughs> the coolest name. Husband Hunter. Husband <laughs> Devony Loser, who said he had to read I think Mansfield Park and 
Uh, he was so excited to talk about it. And then he s submitted his paper and got it like a B minus on it. Once again, we need to do in defense of naive reading because that's what was happening, I think, at that time. And I think he even said he felt like he wasn't worthy. And now I wish I had marked that passage. But um, the one page you did not put a sticky. Oh, note. I know. I know. I know. Or even even if I had, I wouldn't be able to find it at this point. Um but uh, what did you think of the um, origin story of De Devony and George and their their marriage? I just absolutely love that story. Oh, yeah. And I think they're also hysterical in their little, like, two-person comedy duo uh, performances they give where they, like, and then he says, like, you have to answer in my voice. And she records them. They're back and forth. It was really cute. Even the story of meeting her at dinner and she, she, um, he, he makes her go beyond the scholarly to say what she likes and what she doesn't like. And I was sad that she said Mansfield Park is her least favorite because I dislike it because I dislike Fanny. She's too much like me. She's boring. And then George immediately thought, this is the person I'm going to marry. <laughs> Well, you've definitely quoted this to me before on a podcast where you were like, you're wrong. You're just yes. wrong. Yes. Look, I quoted this. I love when they argue. I, I that, That's their thing. And they, they've done things before where like married couple argues about Jane Austen. How much I would love to be in those sessions and see that because they are just so fun. And I didn't remember, by the way, that she was in a vampire movie. That's Oh, no, it's not just a vampire movie. <laughs> Vampire roller derby movie. Yes, vampire roller derby movie. I mean, yeah, how many people can embraced, say that? She really embraced the roller derby thing. But do you want to move into talking about the founding of Jasna? Is there anything you'd like to say about like the third half of the book where they're talking uh, about? Do you want to save that for the next one? So it go like right yeah, before okay. we go to Jasna. What if we do a couple Jasna centric episodes, like pre Jasna history? what we expect and then post Jasna, like we can record some while we're there kind of like a pre during and after. Oh yeah. That's sense? a good idea. Yeah. I mean like record our impressions and stuff. And... I assumed we would recording while we were down. Like I'm going to carry my microphone and laptop. And if we want to like just sneak in a corner and be like, we're right now with Jasna and this just happened, you know, and be like <laughs> coming to you live from the Jasna floor. <laughs> Brilliant. I love it. But I, I'll just end on as a little teaser for when we talk about Jasna and, and the theme of community, community in this book is uh, I was I was incredibly touched um, by the end of the book when Yavi sort of brings it to a close, like the the woman who was on her with the trip at the trip at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And she says, you know what, next next year I might dance. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's. It's the feeling of community. And so, yeah, and Alberta Burke, the collector that was mentioned in this book that started this huge Austin collection, mentions she has a, a private hagiology, hagiology, which I, I've come across that word so many times, I always have to look up what it means. But it's the literature dealing with the lives and legends of saints. Mm. And so in the spirit of having been sort of spiritually <laughs> guided by Jane, I feel like I need to end this episode by reading the Kipling poem. Oh, yeah. The last stanza of Rudyard Kipling's poem called Jane's Marriage. And it's just really rallying for me because we talked today about 
how much she's meant and how much she's changed so many people's lives. Well, and you also shared a lot of personal. Yeah, the the reflection that has gone on in preparation for this podcast has been intense. Which makes me feel bad because the reflection I had was like, oh, shit, it's 3.30. I better go set up. <laughs> but that's Work pretty much the it. difference between the two of us as co-hosts, I think. That's far for the Kristen struggles for like weeks to prepare and mentally prepare herself. And I'm like, oh, shit, it's 3.30. But I better go set up my microphone. <laughs> here's the perfect way to end this. I think this the way, the reason our podcast works for at least some people Although we did get a one-star review on iTunes the other day, so we must be doing something <gasps> right. Um, I know, but Let's the find reason them and dox them. Maybe <laughs> the reason it works is the duality of you and me. Yeah, we are very much and um, the approach represent is, kind of both sides. Yeah, we were uh, both we're both sides of J Knight's, you know, ism. I would say that I am definitely more on the pop culture fan side, although I do read the books and I am able to discuss them critically. Oh, yeah, but an incredible I also really enjoy listening to your more scholarly and academic insights. And that's that's where we fuse and we make the point we make the point where like the little meme with the girl, why not both? You know? Yeah. Wonder <laughs> twins, activate, take the form of a Austin fan. <laughs> Maggie, Kristen. Why not both? And I don't mean to imply that you are not scholarly. You don't make the most amazing points because you totally do. But that's also a good point. You can be in the tent wielding the clue bat half of the time, like Maggie Sullivan, and, uh, you know, having fun and talking about, you know, Alan Rickman and how hot he is. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's multitudes here. Huh. And, and on that note, we'll, we'll just reflect... In the words of Kipling, the last stanza of the poem. Jane lies in Winchester. Blessed be her shade. Praise the Lord for making her and her for all she made. And while the stones of Winchester or Milsom Street remain, glory, love, and honor unto England's Jane. Well, and so somber reading than I thought you were going to do. I sorry. Do you want to do it? You, Here, you I'll do, do it too. We'll give we'll give two interpretations. Okay. <laughs> it's in the very front of the book, right? Isn't there a lot of exclamation points in there, Kristen? I'm just saying. Yes. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Each person does their own. It's just like reading the letter, right? Right. Jane lies in Winchester. Blessed be her shade. Praise the Lord for making her and her for all she made. And while the stones of Winchester or Milsom Street remain, glory, love, and honor unto England's Jane. That was awfully stirring. I know, right? Because I read it. It's just so funny because this is also poetry, right? Like it affects yeah. each person differently. When I read it, it was like, England, like hurrah. <laughs> <laughs> but it's because there's a lot of exclamation points in there. And so that's like me and my emails. Like, yeah. <laughs> So there you go. Just as you have two different Austin fans in your podcast, now you have two different dramatic readings. I actually really love how this turned out. We did kind of miss the idea when we were talking about the duality of fandom that you and I also, to a certain extent, represent that. 
But again, I really do not want to imply that. No, 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 no. I mean, you also, girl, you got hot for Colin Firth, too. So don't even sit there and try to pretend like you didn't start off watching that miniseries. I will will swear to you on my mother's grave. She's still alive. Uh, Right now, (laughs) I have never once had a single fantasy about Colin Firth. Yeah, you're more of a a Crispin Bonham Carter. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Stick that in your pipe and smoke it okay um i will say that while i am married to a man and identify purely as heterosexual uh mansfield park my um my girl who played peggy carter was mariah what's not mariah what's her name mary what's the actress's name oh i love her yeah she is beautiful oh i love her i liked her better than any other character like in that whole adaptation she's the bomb I, um, should we go to the wheat sheath? Let's go to the wheat sheath. Excellent. Do you know that when we talk about going to the wheat sheath, I remember when we were in Steventon, we were leaving the chapel. He's like, oh, so this road's all paved and stuff, but this is the road that they would walk down to get to yes. the village where the mail was. And so when we talk about going to the wheat sheath, that's always where I imagine us walking. Yeah, I have such a vivid picture. I think, I think there's like a, a relief, you know, like a carved stone thing. So a couple of things in the wheat sheath. First of all, I want to thank our listener, Avani, who is in India, from for reaching out to us and just with a kind word and offering encouragement um, to continue the podcast. And, and this is very belated because Avani actually messaged me on the day of your wedding, Maggie. And <gasps> How dare she? No, I, no, I, 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 told it. I, I wrote back right away because I otherwise I'm going to forget. I wrote back right away. Would I was like, thank you so much for getting in touch with us. It's Maggie's wedding day. I will definitely get back to you. And um, so thank you, Avani, for your kind words. Thank you so much for reaching out. That's so appreciated. Yeah, it really is appreciated. And then I would love to also thank uh, Rose from new mexico who said she found her real life mr darcy and but it's hard to talk about austin she doesn't have a lot of austin to talk about people to talk about and i agreed i said it's hard to gush about mr tilney to mr darcy yeah (laughs) you have to find a Catherine moreland for that and so we're happy to be your Catherine moreland and she's a fan of Davies Emma, and she was also delighted to hear that we're fans of the Muppet Christmas Carol. Oh my, yeah, that. Well, we talked. We probably spent way too much time on our last podcast, but we think that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Please look for our coming soon related <laughs> podcast is uh, Muppet Christmas Carol fan cast. Hey, you know that's Dickens, and a lot of people lump Austin and Dickens together in the same sentence, which has never made sense to me. Yeah, me Even either. less sense to me than people lumping Austin and Brontes together in the yeah, same sentence. Yeah, but Americans have no sense of time. So if <laughs> anything is not the 20th century, it's like, well, that all happened at the same time, right? Yeah. I mean, people also think Austin was a Victorian writer. Right, yeah. They, like, they, that's a whole other monarch. We're talking, like, 75 years different, like... Americans are just not smart sometimes. Well, yeah, it's true. And, you know, nobody made us take English literature, history of English literature in uh, high school. We were all busy taking U.S. government for all the good that did us. So Yeah. Good one, one, Kristen. (laughs) I mean, I do work for the U.S. government now. Uh, Well, yeah, you. um, Yes, you do. (laughs) (laughs) Good. So, uh, um, 
by the way, listeners and Maggie, I don't know what the heck to do about my hair. I don't know how to style hair. I I mean, I have a curling iron somewhere, but I I don't know how to put it up. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to have to research like super easy Regency styles. Like I can go Jane Fairfax from the Davies adaptation. Yeah, just like a little bun on top, right? Yeah, Yeah. there we go. So you you may have to help me hmm. put my hair up in a bun. My strategy is always, because I have such curly hair, I'm sure this is the part of the podcast everyone's super interested in, um, I just like kind of pin up the individual curls in the back. Oh, there you go. So it's just, but I could also do like the Lizzie ball, like ponytail, but also like little curls. Yeah, totally. Look, I don't know. We'll figure it out. I'm not super worried about the authenticity of my haircut. (laughs) Yeah, because I just don't want to wear like a super sexy cocktail dress rather than a Regency. (laughs) I just don't want to be or maybe I do want to be wandering around the ball and hear somebody saying she is tolerable, I suppose. Ah, Her complexion is not. uh, (laughs) How is our uh, how is our complexions, Kristen? Right. Um, Peaches and cream. Right. Right. We have such countenance, such air. What's my countenance? (laughs) I think, unfortunately, I think I might fall more on the, like, Mrs. Elton rather than <laughs> Fanny Price side <laughs> of countenance. It's going to be great, though. I'm just, I'm really excited. And I feel like this is the Super Bowl for Jane Austen fans. Yeah. So the yeah. fact that we're going is a big deal. Yes. Yes, it is. Well, I'm excited. And and on that note, and more to come on that. And I guess on that note, we can say... We have delighted you long enough. Bye. Bye.